0: Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. It's October 2023 and our government continues to punch itself in the dick while the four horsemen of the apocalypse assemble around the world, but at least the weather's nice. We're here to get you through the month with a big helping of cinematic content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome James. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. We aim to provide you with the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. We divide each monthly issue into four parts, which we release a week at a time to keep your feed fed through the month.
1: This is the first part of the episode, Double Reel Monthly. We look at recent film news, what new releases are heading our way, and review any new films we've seen since the last episode. We'll also discuss how we're getting on with the film-related resolutions we made for 2023.
0: We'll shortly be releasing our next instalment, the Penalty Shootout Film Quiz. Next week, we'll deliver our regular features, Classics and Recommended, Hidden Gem, The One That Got Away, and the Remake Hate Watch.
1: The following week, it'll be The Big Conversation, where we talk about a topic from the world of film in more detail. We'll tell you more about that later, and there are more details about all of our features on
0: our various social media channels. If you want to check that out or comment on the podcast, you can find us on Twitter on at Double Film. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Reel podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can follow us on letterbox.com slash double reel, where we list all the films we've discussed in the podcast and much more besides. You can also find the Double Reel podcast on the new social media platforms Threads and Mastodon. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world.
1: Now it's time to dim the lights and take your seats for our latest Double Reel monthly. Hope you enjoy it.
0: Let's get into it. Double Real Monthly is the first part of the episode and gives you a regular digest of news, new releases, and how we've been fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. In the next hour and a bit, you'll get a breakdown of what's going on in the world of film this month that will set you up for your own movie watching. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2023. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories, That will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience just to quickly mention our other podcast which you might like to check out the Adamson's versus is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories news and anything else that has caught our attention our most recent episode the Adamson's versus AI is out now uh and just a reminder for everybody, uh, we uh, we've decided to do the Penalty Shootout film quiz as a, uh, as a separate episode because we think that will flow better. Otherwise, uh, for our regular listeners, it's uh, business as usual. Uh, with all of that admin and self-promotion out of the way, let's look at some messages we received from listeners since the last episode. Uh, on the new film, The Lesson, which we'll be discussing later, Scott says, Possibly there's something going on under the surface of this film that I missed, but I found it pretty boring. Andy on the other hand says I really fell for this film, Richard E. Grant gives possibly his best ever performance and it keeps you guessing as to the ending while really bringing to life the motivations of the characters. We'll be talking about new film The Creator in a bit and Lee says really looking forward to seeing this, cinema tastes have changed, the MCU is in a black hole as interest has waned after Endgame, the DCU is a pile of shite, the wind's blowing in an odd direction at the moment, a new franchise or just a great new film needs to step in and right the ship. Matthew says, it's a shame that the creator hasn't done very well at the box office. If people won't see original films that aren't an adaptation of a book, comic, toy, or game, that it's hard to see what future there is for mainstream cinema. Richard disagrees uh, on one point and says, there's nothing original about the creator. It's completely derivative. So, people's thoughts are a bit all over the place on that one. Another new or newish film we'll be covering is Nimona. And Dan says, this is a wonderfully bizarre celebration of both the differences that define us and the similarities that bind us and maybe one of the most important kids' films to come out in years. I'm sure it will get under the wafer-thin skin of ultra-right-wingers, but in all honesty, that's just another positive in my lefty snowflake eyes. It's exceptionally written, brilliantly acted, wondrously animated, emotionally fulfilling, and crammed with more genuine laughs than most live-action comedies. What's not to love? That's a thumbs-up. Anthony says they've changed too much in Nimona from the comic book and made it a bit by the numbers and predictable, but it does have a lot of the action and goofy fun from the original, and it's beautifully animated. Good, but not as good as I'd of Light. Another newer film uh, is How to Blow Up a Pipeline. This gets a comment from Kieran. It was a tall order to adapt this book into a film, and its message will divide audiences, but it's a tense and well-structured thriller, which does a good job of its Reservoir Dogs-esque flashback structure. Our entry in the Cronenberg Institute this month is The Fly, and Randall says, My favourite Cronenberg film. It's just about perfect. Jenny says, I love it. Watched it many times over the years, and it still stands up. Peter says probably the only commercial film he did that's still a Cronenberg film yes I know what you mean and Miguel says a remake that is light years ahead of the original um well I couldn't agree more with all of that um so thank you very much for all your messages uh we do appreciate hearing what people think uh now on with the podcast uh the first thing we usually cover is the news so James what news has caught your eye?
1: I can't remember when we covered this but the the writer strike has officially kind of come to an end hasn't Yeah it? yeah
0: that's happened since we last recorded right. yeah so the the last the last report I read was you know how all these things are when it's a complex process it says the writer strike's over what that means is they've come to an agreement which they now need to write up and once they've written it up then it will be officially over Do you know what I mean so it's over but there's still some like admin to do kind of thing um what i understand to be the case is that there's a couple of things that the writers asked for that they didn't get but they've got a lot of what they asked for including um better pay um some protection on things like residuals and stuff that was important to them a minimum number of writers to be in a writer's room which they said is very important for the um writers to gain experience like um what's the name of the guy did breaking but vince gillian he didn't come out of the blocks with Breaking Bad and then Better Call Saul because he's this great TV writer. He is a great TV writer, but he started out as a young and experienced TV writer. And then he went through the process of being like, he's quite good. Give him a job doing this. You can write one episode of this series you're working on, or you can be doing the edits. And it's only by learning your trade like that that you can become the person who then does the all-time great TV show. And it was very, very important them to say, you've got to continue to give like jobs, roles, and opportunities for writers to basically to learn their trade and earn a living as jobbing writers um so yeah I, I hopefully this is like a good thing hopefully it bodes well for the the actors strike as well i mean know what else you saw about it mate
1: um i know that we've, we've we've sort of touched on the delays that the films yeah that were affected by it i haven't seen any more of you
0: um not any like formal announcements uh i i was at the cinema last night and i saw a trailer for napoleon which was one of the ones people were asking for so it looks like at the moment and that's only like a month to six weeks away from its date that the napoleon isn't delayed dune decided to push back to um uh the, the 24th and i think that's probably because of the uh the the actors they want the actors out promoting the film uh with the writers' strike, I think we're going to see the impact. I was there's again there's a really good podcast called The Town on the Ringer Network, and I was listening to a guy on that saying we're probably going to feel the effect of the writers' strike next year because it's it's longer. I think it's the longest writers' strike ever, and it's like five months, and it's closed down a lot of productions. That doesn't take effect immediately because a lot of things are in post production or already in the can and get released. But when the next sort of scheduled slate of things is meant to be arriving next year, well, now it won't because there was a five month gap. So I think we'll see the true effect of all the delays on the writing side next year. Right. Okay. Uh, but the the actors stuff is still going. I I don't I don't know whether that, you know how close that is to to being um, to being called out. Anything else you saw? Um. Nothing just
1: for, jumps to my mind. No. Yeah,
0: just, for the for the audience's benefit, we for scheduling reasons like i said we do fit fit everything in with our, our actual lives and jobs we're recording this a little bit before normal uh you know normal uh, release date so we're not going to catch the latest top of the press's news you know if if the if the if a, if a big story comes out uh, about the, the the actors strike in the next week or so before we can release our episode that that's the way the cookie crumbles um one one bit of news that, that came up is uh, Michael Gambon uh, passed away at the I age of eighty two. Yeah. Um, I think, especially to your generation, mate, he's best known for playing uh, being the second actor to play Albus Dumbledore in the Harry Potter series. Yeah. Did you see him much in anything outside that?
1: Um, not really, no.
0: Yeah, it's a funny one. He uh, he came to kind of prominence in film and TV sort of slightly late because he was a big theatre guy. He was in, He was one of the main guys in Olivier's kind of theatre company, uh, like 60s and, and, and 70s. He was a big guy in, in Olivier's theatre stuff. Um, and his next thing, the, the first big hit show he was in or on screen he was in was a TV show called The Singing Detective. But the whole thing of The Singing Detective, he was playing a character who, I can't remember the details now because it is like 40 years ago. But he's in his 40s before he's like starring in a big kind of thing on screen. But the character he's playing has got make makeup and bandages on because he's either been badly burned or he's got some other disease. So even though, obviously, everyone heard his voice and recognised his voice and everything now, but he didn't see his face, so it didn't make him a star overnight. Do you know what I mean? Right. And then there was The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover in, like, 1987, 88, something like that. So he's already in his mid to late 40s before he's, like, doing anything particularly prominent in, in film and TV. Similar, I guess, to, like, um Ian McKellen who was already like super established on uh in fact I think Ian McKellen was like on the verge of a knighthood for services to theatre before he got big in film and and I think Michael Gambon's in, in a similar order but obviously you know terrific body of work he's now known very widely because he mixed you know theatre and and independent film with uh stuff I remember he was in the insider where he was very very good played a proper kind of proper baddie in that he's uh yeah he's a class act and uh he'll be missed but he's left a great body of work behind him there's a, there's another rip i would be surprised if you heard of this guy mate because i don't even know that much about him and you know he's far more my era than yours uh, a british film director called terence davies has passed away at the age of 77 after I did, what, I did a short see Ill. that he, he was 77 wasn't he that's right yeah all, all they said is a short illness so i don't know what the story is behind that um Terence Davis is... It's funny, he's known for films like Distant Voices, Still Lives, The Long Day Closes*, and The House of Mirth, um, which have this... They've got a big reputation among the critics and film buffs being these kind of delicate, sad, beautiful-looking films. I never got around to watching them. Kind of... uh, Not sure if they were for me. Maybe I'll get around to watching them. That sounds interesting. They're kind of very... uh, Apparently sort of very very well made, a very kind of gentle, but very sad kind of family dramas. And honestly, I, I never got around to watching them. I might try and get around to watching them now. I put them in the same kind of bracket as, um, the, the, the director, Wong Kar Wai, who, you know, everyone raves about these films. And I read these synopsis and think, yeah, I should get around to watching that one day. Never have. But RIP Terrence Davies, who is, uh, I think you would call him a, you know, an artist of, you know, one of the more, more artistic film directors. Um, Anything else you notice, mate? Not really, no. I think that it was quite a quiet month. Is an interesting headline, and I don't know much more about it at the moment, is Chris Rock has announced that he's going to be directing a Martin Luther King biopic. Okay. Which I find very interesting because I know Chris Rock has directed some films before, but they were relatively small scale and they were comedies. Now, comedy's hard to do, uh, as is the theme of our, um, uh, of our episode uh, this month. Um, but, you know, big historical biopics are not something he's got experience in. So we'll see. But look, I, I like Chris Rock. I think he's a talented, interesting guy. So i will be fascinating to see how that's given that. I think um, we already know one person who won't be cast in the main role. Um, I don't Do you know. I think what, it's me. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know anything else about it apart from that. I don't know whether it's like an authorised um, biopic because you remember they did that film Selma. And it didn't have the it didn't have the authorization of the family, or the family had already sold the rights to Martin Luther King's story and speeches to another film company. So when David Oyelowo played MLK in, in Selma, he couldn't do any of the speeches. They had to write new speeches that sounded like him. So all I know all I know about Martin Luther King biopics is that the the rights to them are complicated. I don't know how much the family is going to want a three dimensional Watson all description of his of his character um you know that that sort of thing is it has impacted other recent biopics we'll see but it caught my attention mainly because chris rock I went oh chris rock that's an interesting direction for him so we'll see what happens with that but uh i think that's the news for this month right like you say a bit of a quiet month yeah yeah i think it might pick up now the the news is likely to pick up through the rest of the the year because it's going to be like you know award season and uh you know a, a complicated award season because the actor's strike is still on so we'll see about that um so other than that um, we then go on to new releases the films that are going to be out this um, uh, this coming month between the date that this uh, episode goes live on the 25th of October and the next episode the 25th of November we have a little discussion of what new films are coming out which have caught our eye Uh, any upcoming releases uh, grabbed your attention mate
1: Um, I did have a little list why
0: don't you go first yeah, so we talked. By the way, we talked about Paw Patrol: The Mighty movie coming out. That is that is out or about to be, or that that will already come out by the time this gets released to to our audience. Um, because we're recording slightly early, haven't taken uh, your little brother to see it yet, but that's still on the cards. And obviously, on the we talked about on the twentieth of October, Killers of the Flower Moon will be out. We're obviously going to be discussing that next month, not not this month. Um, but then from the twenty fifth uh, going on. There's a new version of Dr. Jekyll with Eddie Izzard in the main role. Um, I just feel like it's not going to be very good and it's going to end up being like a, a political hot potato between both sides of, a, of an entrenched argument that I'd rather not get involved in, so forget that. Uh, November the 10th, The Marvels comes out, which is the follow-up to Captain Marvel with Brie Larson in as, as Captain Marvel, but then they've introduced the two... Other Marvelly type characters. One's Ms. Marvel, who got her own series, and the other one I don't recognise, but it must be another uh, Marvel suit. You know, person that Marvel group saw a trailer for it. Doesn't look very good. Um, I don't know what you've heard about this film. Whether it's whether it's going to be I any good.
1: I Genuinely didn't know it existed. <laughs> so Captain Marvel was terrible. I've got no interest in it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I thought, I mean, I thought the Captain Marvel film was like okay, but it, it did feel like it, it just kind of sneaked out. It was a bit of an afterthought. I like Captain Marvel, the superhero, and I thought she was really good in Endgame. I don't feel like they've done enough with her as a as a as a character, actually. Now um, this film coming out, I, I mean, I watched the trailer literally last night, then the night before, you know, the, the, you know, the, you know, recording, and. Do you know what it looked like? It looked like the trailer that you see like eighteen months before the film comes out. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, okay, that's a little snippet. we'll, we'll see what the real film's like, and but but expecting more trailers to come out nearer the time. That's what the trailer looked like. And I don't know if they're just keeping their cards cards close to their chest. Like we don't want really to show people too much of the movie. Let's, but you know, g- given that it is, it's not. It's only a few weeks away from coming out. Like you say, you, you're barely aware that it was happening doesn't feel like they're promoting it very strongly? Yeah, not at all.
1: Did that give you time to find your list? Yes, so uh, Five Nights at Freddy's The Killer looks quite interesting, doesn't
0: it? Yeah, so that is not going to get a cinema release, is it? That is um, uh, David Fincher's new film. It's a Netflix one, I think. Yeah, because he's he signed a deal with Netflix, so I think he got sick of the normal um, TV studio. Uh He's worked with them before with Mindhunter, so I think he likes them. What? Yeah, because he he basically took a break from film, doing TV. He liked working with Netflix on on Mindhunter, I think, because he got the um, the freedom to do what he wanted, and you know, money's budget's usually not a problem. And they let him do Mank, which is something he'd been wanting to do for years. Um, the main pitfall with Netflix films is that they tend to be absolute kind of uh, just by the numbers stuff by journeyman filmmakers. Neither of which were problem for David Fincher because, like him or not, he will come with a spec- He will come with a vision. He will come with a film that kind of makes you sit up and take notice. Whether you, you know, whether you like it or not, or whether you love, you know, David Fincher as much as his biggest fans is another story. Um, this is based on a graphic novel that I've read and love. It's got Michael Fassbender as a hitman. It's got Tilda Swinton in it as well. A bunch of other actors that I've I recognise from from a trailer. I reckon this could be really good. Just a little bit of a shame, It's getting a, it, it's got what they call a limited theatrical release, which means it'll be on for about five minutes somewhere, um, and then it's going to be on Netflix, but I'll be tuning in, we'll almost certainly be discussing that next month. Where are you on Fincher these days, mate? I, I really liked, um, it's weird to say
1: like, I enjoyed Gone Girl, I thought it was a, a good film, and mm-hmm. I feel like that's more of what he wants to make, and I got similar vibes from like what he was doing with Mindhunter.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and the killer from reading the graphic novel is very much a it's kind of one of those unreliable narrator um, because it's told in the first person uh, there's an ironic tone to the narration which kind of makes you realise yeah this guy is a killer and he's a sociopath because he's an assassin and um, I think it's the sort of thing that Fincher does well because his interest in like psychologically profiling people basically I think is going to get used so I'm yeah. looking forward to it, and it's look. It's got action. It's got Michael Fassbender in it. So there's it, bound to be something you can watch, right? So yeah, I, again, I'm just disappointed that, that that those things get shown don't aren't going to get shown on um uh on the big screen really, or well, not more than like in a well, few places.
1: We're probably going to see more of that, given how disastrous Hollywood seems to be at the moment. So
0: <sighs> yeah, I mean, I was hoping it was going in the direction because Killers of the Flower Moon is getting a good release. Apple are like, well, because I feel like Apple are. I know they're a big company outside of the film world, but in film and entertainment, they're still trying to punch above their weight. They're kind of like um, they're kind of like Nike and Air, right? They're big in other areas, but they're trying to get bigger in this area. And because yeah. I think they're trying to get noticed, they'll go, well, we'll show our films in the cinema. Come on then. Because I think they want to kind of showcase what they've got. So uh, Killers of the Fly Moon's getting a cinema release, a decent one, and Napoleon's getting a decent cinema release. So I was hoping that was going to kind of encourage people to, to go out. I think the problem is not... I think the problem is there's not enough fucking interesting films being made. And yeah. Hollywood knows what it needs to do about that, is let good filmmakers and writers actually fucking come up with some ideas. Do you know what I mean? But that's another that's another rant. <laughs> but yeah, The Killer... I, I, if, if it's on near me, I would like to go and see that. So yeah, we'll see. Um, there's a Hunger Games prequel, which I'm, I could not be less interested in, if I'm completely honest.
1: See, I watched all of The Hunger Games recently, and I actually quite enjoyed them. So there's a little bit of interest in this one for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think the Hunger Games films were right. I, I especially thought the way they, in the in the latter ones, they kind of showed, like, the propaganda war, the phony war and stuff like that, and, and, and they took the story in a couple of interesting directions. I was, you know, didn't, you know, I thought they were right. I just, it, it's about Snow. I think it's about Snow, the Donald Sutherland character.
1: Yeah, it's, it's seven, it's, like, when he was about twenty, it looks like so. It's yeah, a good, say sixty odd years before. And he's
0: such an unequivocal villain in the in the um the main film. Look, it's got apparently it's got uh, Peter Dinklage in it and Viola Davis. I mean, it's look there will be things worth watching in it. But hey ho, um, there's a film called Saltburn coming out, which is a comedy drama slash thriller. Which um, it's the cast that it's 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 written and directed by Emerald Fennell, who's uh, who is interesting, and it's got Rosamund Pike and Barry Keoghan in it. Barry Keoghan from uh, Banshees of Anna Sharon and the only remotely watchable thing in The Eternals.
1: He's also going to play um, the Joker.
0: Yes, so, so with that with that cast and a, an, an interesting like filmmaker behind it, that might be worth a watch. I think, keep an eye out for that. If you're getting tired of big, big films, I reckon that'd be, that might be one to just keep an eye on. Um and this is weird it's napoleon has dropped off the imdb upcoming releases list so i yeah, need to I check noticed when that, that's but on it's
1: the 22nd of november
0: yeah so that that's the big one that's the one that i'm i'm keeping a, a a massive eye out for which is the ridley scott's napoleon film i saw a trailer for it last night i am so excited yeah fucking hell really want to see that um I mean, I'm, I'm obviously more of a Ridley Scott fan than you are, mate, but he's done some films you love, right? And this is what he does well. Yeah. Um, I really want this to smash it out of the park. I really would like this to be the one where they sort of say, I'm sorry, Ridley, we should have given you the best director probably about two or three times already. Here is your best director Oscar. I just feel like that the year that Nolan did Oppenheimer and uh, Scorsese's done Killers of the Flower Moon not, might not have been the best year for him to have landed <laughs> uh-huh. this. He could still um, do it, though. It's... He could He could still do it. I fu- I, look, I fucking love Ridley Scott. I think it's, um, you know, I remember, uh, again, we were talking about William Freakin last month, and Mark Cummard remembers talking to him about how unjust it was that The Exorcist wasn't even nominated for Best Picture in the year it came out. And he says, I don't give a fuck about that. I know it was the Best Picture. And so I think Ridley Scott must be at that stage now. He's like, he's 86. He doesn't give a fuck. He can make a Napoleon film where dozens of other people have failed to make a Napoleon film. Um, and I I, I I, really love this. Don't give a fuck. Let me make my movie. Get out of my way, Ridley Scott. Because I think he's, he's, um, you know, all the stuff that I, that about Ridley Scott that I I love is encapsulated in that, you know? Um, so I'm so looking forward to this. And Whacking Phoenix is Napoleon. Vanessa Kirby is Josephine. What's not to like? Yeah, so... That That's the big one, which, presuming it goes ahead, that kind of helps us do the, the episode we were planning for December, which is going to be a bit of a Ridley Scott special um, in honour of watching that. So, yeah, I think... Unless there's anything else that's caught your eye, mate?
1: Um, nah, not really.
0: Yeah. I mean, maybe things are going to speed up now. I mean, it is going to be a big finish of the year because some quite well-known directors are releasing quite anticipated films. David Fincher, The Killer, uh, Martin Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon, Ridley Scott, Napoleon after what I think has been a bit of a mixed year that only really perked up with Barbie and Oppenheimer, it does feel like the film releases might perk up a bit now. So, fingers crossed. Okay, next up, we talk about what new or notable films we have watched uh, since our last episode. James, what new or, or particularly notable films have you watched since we were last uh, discussing on Double Real Monthly?
1: I don't think I've watched
0: many new films. I've just
1: gone back and watched like some old classics that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a bit of a bit of a dry month for me in terms of new films. Um, I've not had a chance to even look at going to the cinema. Um, but we watched The Harry Potters again, and... Um, with the news of Michael Gambon passing away, well, like, I thought I'd... like all of them. Yeah, uh, yeah, and then watched Fantastic Beasts, um. But the first one, yeah, yeah. How how does that hold up now? It's got some really cringy moments, but it is really good. I think because I've played that new Harry Potter game. There's loads of animals in that mm-hmm. that are in the uh, that film, but um, I don't think I've actually properly watched the Secrets of Dumbledore, so I probably need mm-hmm. to give that. A, a watch and probably a good criticising hmm.
0: um, I watched the first one I don't think I've been bothered with the, with the others it's like mm-hmm, whatever you
1: know yeah I think when you start changing the like one of the lead characters you just kind of you kind of give up on it yeah but yeah nothing uh, jumps out at me for uh, for new films what about you you okay. said you went to the cinema
0: yeah so you, you jump in if anything else occurs to you um I've actually caught up with a few things um, because obviously um, I do like to try and watch as many 2023 films or films released in the year as I can so that I've got something to suggest for you know the double Reel awards and because you know, watching new films is you know, it's good what you know I, you know it's good to watch new things so I've seen two things at the cinema and a couple of other things I've picked up watching on streaming the first thing I want to see at the cinema was the lesson okay. So The Lesson is another British... I guess British independent film, um, but certainly on a bigger scale than the last one I watched, which was uh, Scrapper. Um, The Lesson is a kind of... It's a kind of country house kind of psychological thriller. The director is Alice Troughton, who's making her debut as a film director, but she's been doing TV for about 20 years, so she's pretty experienced. You know, she said she found directing a film actually quite easy compared to making um tv shows just because you get so much more time to actually you know get it done like she did an episode or three episodes of tin star that tim roth thing she's done some dc's legends of tomorrow and the flash so she's done some stuff over in america so she knows her onions and she is the director of this this film um it is uh it's richard e grant julie delpy a guy I've not seen before called Daryl McCormack. He's from Northern Ireland, um, and Crispin Letts, who I see I recognise from, but I'm not quite sure where from. So Richardie Grant is a sort of legendary like author who's uh, old school. He's made a, you know, made a great living as one of these fine writers of of you know what's seen as perhaps you know. Seen by some people as great fiction, perhaps seen as a little bit old-fashioned mule by old fashioned now. And now he lives in his big house. Um, Julie Delpy plays his wife, and they have two sons, but one of them died. He, he took his own life, um, drowned himself um, on on the on the grounds, and the the other son is somewhat kind of damaged and in the shadow of his really kind of toxic father and kind of slightly smothering mother. Um, Daryl McCormack plays a young aspiring writer who uh, is a, an English tutor and the framing device of the of the film is that Daryl McCormack at the start is at one of these kind of um, you know talk-ins he's on stage with an interviewer with a with a, with a, an adoring audience saying you just made this great debut novel it seems one of the you know the best new novels uh, in, in a long time what was the inspiration for your film sorry for your book and then he kind of uh Sort of smiles to himself, and then the rest of the film is in flashback, and his experiences that that we're about to see are the the inspiration for this this new film that he's just a uh, new book that he's just written, and he is hired to be the English tutor for Richard E. Grant, Julie Delpy's son, because they want want him to get into Oxford, and when he gets there, he soon finds that it's a really kind of weird setup. Right, the um the mum is a she's a. She's a sculptor, but mainly an art curator. He's not written anything in years. He's suffering from writer's block, but he's working on a new novel, which he says is going to be his best in years. Um, the, the, main, the, the main guy is a, a huge fan of Richard E. Grant, so he's kind of following him around like a lost puppy when he's not tutoring the son. The son comes across like a fucking dick, like really supercilious and kind of you know hard to reach but you get the feeling that maybe it's because he's like damaged and Richardie grant treats him really fucking badly he's really domineering but clearly they're all really grieving for the loss of some brother who died before them and it's this psychological thriller where you kind of sees strange things happening in the you know like there's a scene where richard e grant is kind of uh, started to have sex with Julie Delpy in his study. and um, Daryl McCormick uh, in the guest house can, has, has been watching Richardie Grant write going, "Oh God, I you know I, I, I want to learn I want to write like my hero. So he's been watching him. And he looks up one night and they're he's having sex with his wife on the desk. and Julie Delpy looks out the window and catches his eye can see that he's watching. It's like oh, what's going on here? This is really weird? And it's got a kind of a gothic, really sort of stifling atmosphere. So a promising start, yeah. And Darren McCormick has a bit of the talented Mr. Ripley about him. You wonder how much he's kind of gonna, you know, uh, how much is he gonna like take advantage of the situation for his own kind of personal advancement? You've got that kind of vibe. Um and it then kind of it kind of falls over a little bit. It it it, it, it shifts towards this ending. Obviously, someone's harbouring a dark secret, that's what these films always have. That secret is revealed, revealed and there's a bunch of fallout. And that's the experience that he's writing his book about, you know, that's literally what you're going to find out. And it doesn't really land the ending. When you get to the end, you go, oh, you've really kind of twisted that out of shape. And it started out as this psychological thriller that was a bit slow moving, but I was prepared to go with it. And then the ending is like, oh, you've kind of, they tried to kind of deliver a proper thriller ending to it. They hadn't really built to properly. All the problems are in the script. The script needed a fucking substantial rewrite to make the story work because they were obviously trying to land at this point revelation, who's done what, who finds out about it, what what you know, what, what does that turn into? And they've it it's it the development from a psychological kind of what are these people up to, what's going on, to big ending, they don't land it at all. Um so it ended up being a bit disappointing. An interesting film that just kind of it kind of flopped across the finish line and didn't quite work, I'm afraid. But well acted by all the people involved. Richard e. Grant is very good. Julie Delpy's good. The new guy, Darren McCormick, Darren McCormack is good as well. Just, sorry, didn't quite land. Um, not quite there. Um, I then watched a few things on streaming. Um, you know, uh, the people mentioned in the listeners' messages, Nimona. Now, have you heard anything about the film Nimona? I have not no. So Nimona I noticed this got reviewed earlier in the the year and I think maybe it got like a short release but it's mostly been shown on Netflix. Um, Nimona is an animated film. Uh, it's I say kids film yeah it kind of is because it's aimed at you know it's 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 you know it's it's one of those things you know it's like a PG but no material really like to offend anybody. Uh, Riz Ahmed plays the main character. And I think it's Chloe Grace Moretz as the as the as the other lead. Um, I think it is. Let me just have a look at my name. yeah. Chloe Grace, Grace Moretz is the other lead. Riz Ahmed plays a knight uh, in a sort of futuristic but retro futuristic like world they've created here, where they've got technology like they have big screens and people have phones. Do you know what I mean? People have people have smartphones like you and me, right? But in this alternative world the kind of they don't like have a police force or an army they have these knights who have swords now they're swords that are not quite lightsabers they kind of like have a little they, they can shoot lasers basically as well as being swords so it's like they've got knights and chivalry but in a slightly futuristic environment quite interesting to look at um rizarmed is sort of He's from the wrong side of the tracks. He's normally these are kind of some very, you know, because it's knights and it's a bit aristocratic. Some people look down on him and say, oh, who's this young poor kid on a scholarship? Why is he, you know, succeeding as a knight? But he does really well for himself and is appointed to be kind of the lead protector, the main hero that, you know, that is going to protect the queen. And then at the ceremony where he's unveiled, he's the sword, his sword gets handed to him by a page and he goes up to like get his sword kind of anointed or whatever happened. And then, out of his control, the sword suddenly turns into a weapon and shoots and kills the queen. And he's like, "What? What the hell happened here?" But to all intents and purposes, right, he's just assassinated the queen and becomes the chief villain. He's on the run. Blah blah blah. He's got to get away. Um, the the other bit to it that is, his character is gay. Then actually, I would say he's gay. It could be bi, but his you know his boyfriend, who he's in love with, is one of the other knights, the golden boy knight, the one that everyone thinks is like your typical hero type, and. It's obviously heartbreaking for both of them that now he's on the run and his 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 former boyfriend, despite having been in love with him and not entirely believing that he could just kill somebody like that, has to catch him. So you've got that kind of um, dynamic. Into this comes Nimona, who is a kind of, she starts out looking like a, just like a cheeky kind of young girl. But she's got powers. She can transform into a dragon or a rhino or anything she likes. And, you know, they just so she often see her with dragon wings and stuff. She starts up by going, ah, oh, you're a villain, are you? Let's be villains together. Let's fight this society. They're a bunch of pricks anyway. Not pricks. That's me kind of paraphrasing. They, they deserve to be knocked down. Let's go and be villains. Let's go and smash things up. And he's like, no, I'm not a villain. I didn't kill the queen. I, I want to clear my name. I want to find who really did it. Um, but between the two of them, they sort of strike up a bit of a friendship and they want to, they go and uncover the plot because there's a plot and there's a whole thing on Fun action. Very funny. Clover Gashmerex is very good. She's got all the funny lines, but Riz Ahmed plays a, he plays that, I say plays a traditional hero, but he doesn't because he's, everyone thinks he's the villain. So he's a bit kind of, uh, uh off as well. But you know, you know, you know what Riz Ahmed is like. He's very good at getting the tone right on the character. A lot of fun, very exciting, People have talked briefly about the fact that it's got a gay main character like that's really notable but they don't make a big thing of it they don't hide it they don't you know there's a kiss at the end it's like oh that's nice um but mainly it's just character with the kind of a fun arc it looks great it's got a different look to it and I really enjoyed this the one thing I wanted to say about this is there's a background to this right so it's a it's a little bit groundbreaking because it's you know it's got some diversity to it. It's the usual kind of nice mix of of you know black, white, Asian, everything you like characters, male, female, blah blah blah. Um, the main character is Asian, well what we call Asian, um, what the what the, the Americans would call South Asian or whatever, um, and 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 is gay. So there's a little bit of like oh you don't you don't see that in a big animated film these days. So you would have thought, wouldn't you, that Disney, being the kind of like people that are fighting the governor of Florida with, you know, with his don't say gay law, and they stood up and said, you can't treat gay people like this. We've got lots of gay people working in our corporation. How dare you treat them like this you're homophobic to the, to the uh, you know at the risk of losing their tax breaks and the governor kind of taking you know censoring them and stuff he says no, we're going to stand up you would think that if someone brought this property to Disney they would go oh fantastic here's a chance for us to show how much we care about gay stories by putting this not at all objectionable perfectly fine just shows that gay people are the same as everybody else but good story let's make this movie. What do you think Disney did
1: uh I think I can guess.
0: They turned it down. Senior management said, oh, I'm not sure about this. This doesn't sound right. I don't think we're quite ready to have a gay main character in a a film. So they turned the film down. Imagine my shock. So what happens was pneumonia gets made by other people on a lower budget and we'll never know how it would have done at the box office because Netflix bought the film, right? But it's one of the most watched films on Netflix. It's one of the best reviewed films on Netflix uniformly better reviews from everybody who's watched it from every single Disney animation that has come out this year and all the Disney live action remakes have fucking flopped at the box office. So Disney chose, you know, it's like go woke, go broke. Well, guess what? They had a chance to go woke and make some fucking money and they didn't do it. So Disney can get fucked because when they had a chance to put their money where their mouth was, they turned a film down. A perfectly good idea for a movie and someone else did it. And in a way, I'm actually glad that Disney didn't make it because I bet they'd have fucked it up. The people who did this had less money, but they got a good cast, they based it on a good story, it's well written, it's well made, it looks really good, even though it's not, you can tell it's not lavish, do you know what I mean? You can tell it's not, like, full on, like, we had all the money in the world and all the best fucking computers to animate this, but it's still really nicely made, it looks very good. You you know, it's not, it's not shonky at all. Really well made film, and I thought, fucking hell, this is... You know, how ironic that it's fucking, you know, Disney turned down that in the year that they're having, they turned down a chance to actually have a, a decent hit movie that would have, you know, you know, they talk about, oh, look how diverse we are, because we cast like one black person in our remake of the fucking same film we did 30 years ago, based on our hands, Christian Anderson's like, now, if there's some diversity right there for you, mate, you could have made that, did they? Did they fuck? But well done to the people who did make this movie, because they did a really nice job of it. So a bit of a soapbox moment there for me, but that's that. So, pneumonia is good. It's genuinely worth watching. It's on Netflix. Really, costs you nothing apart for an hour and a half of your time, and it's a good movie. Just, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it up there and say, oh, this is better than Finding Nemo or anything like that. But it's a good, solid, decent animated film, and and I think it outstrips everything that the big studios did this year. So, I'm fair play to Nimona and the people who made it.
1: My Namona.
0: Yeah. So that's all I was thinking when you were yeah, talking yeah, yeah. about the name there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you see, I didn't get that earworm because that, that song has already been attached to Saoirse Ronan for me. <laughs> uh, the other one I did, again, this is also a film on Netflix, although I think this was an independent film that was made you know, separately from the system and got picked up by Netflix. It, I think it may have had a bit of a release earlier in the year, but it's now available to watch on Netflix, which is How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And this is a this is an independent film based on a book. And the book is I don't know if I haven't read the book myself. I don't know if the book is actually a like a like a fictional story where characters do this and characters do that. I think the book is actually a a book about how it is time if you genuinely care about the environment that, that someone is gonna to need to actually start fighting back because the oil industry, fossil fuels, invested interests and fucking fascists and the Russians are just stopping anyone from doing anything to stop the planet being fucking killed and it's about time somebody did something about it and the the film is takes that idea and creates a fictionalised story about some characters who go out and do exactly that they're going to go and blow up an oil pipeline to um, uh, to strike a blow against the people that are killing the planet and unlike a lot of the films that do this it is you know they say oh it's eco terrorists." and what happens is is that you go the tone of the film is always yes we think we should save the planet but the people who are doing this kind of um uh the, these actions are misguided and are gonna you know damage their own case and it's all a little bit wag- f- wagging finger wagging and preachy no this film is about some people who are going to blow up a pipeline and the, the opinion of the people making the film is that these are the good guys and we're going to see if they do it basically um a lot of act, sort of actors I half recognise in the main. That one of the main guys is um, Marcus Scribner, who plays the eldest son in Blackish. If you watch that show, uh, slightly different part for him uh, in that he's quite good. A um, bunch of other people: uh, Lucas Gage looked familiar to me. Sasha Lane looked familiar. Um, the. the what they do is the story is told in, in slightly flashback format, which is why the, the the listener who wrote it in said that it kind of had a little bit of a vibe of Reservoir Dogs about it, because what it does is that it goes, right, shit's just just happened, and then you get a flashback about one of the characters going, well, why are they in this group? Because they're not, they're kind of, these people have slightly met online or, or kind of been, or, or come together, and, you know, one person is there because her mum has died because of uh, just air pollution in her area. Another girl is is there because she's got um, an incurable like condition because of pollution uh, that no one gave her anything about. And because it's America, that's a fucking death sentence because you can't get money for treatment. Um, there's one guy there who is clearly not the same as you, your typical ac- activist type because he's a farmer who carries a gun. But his land has been subject to a compulsory purchase by some oil company that's just got the power to fucking take land off people and build a pipeline through his um through his land so he needs a really good alibi right otherwise he's kind of obvious whether he's part of it so over the film you get flashbacks showing why everybody's there at the start of it i thought i could find this annoying if we keep stopping for flashbacks but they actually did it really really well like there's a bit where like the bomb they're trying to attach the bomb and they drop it and you see the bomb fall and then you get a flashback to, to something's happened and i'm sitting there and i'm on the edge of my seat going what's about to happen And the flashback is kind of, it's really, really nicely done. It's got a very good score. I think they've listened to a bit of John Carpenter and they've worked out how you can can get a score to do a hell of a lot of work to maintain the suspense of the story. And it plays all the way through. Um, It's got some surprises as to how it plays out and what happens. And the film is absolutely unequivocal. The people building this pipeline are a bunch of cunts. The people trying to blow up the pipeline are, are doing the very best they can to act ethically. Like they're trying to do it they're trying to make sure they do it at a time where nobody's going to be around to get injured. They're also trying to do it in a way that no oil actually spills out of the pipes. But but in doing this, A, it will set back the uh, the oil pipeline by months because they'll have to rebuild all their infrastructure and B, it will be a very public... Um, uh, uh, show and it's basically a call to arms it's a call to arms to say the, these people who are killing the environment need to actually be taken on with this kind of thing there was criticisms of the original book that says it's very easy for this sort of thing to spill over into violence and into indiscriminate terrorism and it doesn't really address that at all you can make that argument this is a really really good movie it will it will divide audiences based on the fact that um it is actually actively arguing for the kind of terrorism that Nelson Mandela did you know like blowing up telephone poles uh so it is activating terrorism um but it's saying that now is the time that you actually have to do it but it's a really good movie it is a genuine thriller um you know that that you know it's one of those you know you know we, we, we often talked in the past about oh this film's trying to make a point but it forgot to make a movie this makes a point and a movie and i i thought everyone did a really nice job um probably the pick of the actors is a guy called forest Goodluck, who's a native american actor playing one of the guys uh um in, in the group, uh, yeah, I like this. This is a nice little, um, uh, li- nice little pleasant surprise of a movie where someone said this is out. Heard well, what it was about, stuck it on, and went, "Oh, this is really good." No fanfare, just a good solid movie. So that's a definite recommendation to watch that because it's a genuine good thriller. Nice. Um, so, uh, as you will have seen, uh, people, the special episode that came out uh, before this latest edition of Double Real Monthly was a, an interview, a second interview with our good friend Jamie B. Chambers, the producer, actor, stunt coordinator and fight choreographer who uh, was recently on or on a year ago for Morris Men. He's got a new film out. It's called I Am Rage. And for the pod, I watched that. And because it's a, you know, a new film released at the end of August and, and I've watched it, I thought I'd review that as well. Um, you haven't seen this yet, have you, mate? No. So this is, look, this is proper low budget. And there's some very interesting insights into how this film was made In that Jamie wasn't even, he was only there to be the stunt choreographer um, and, and, and stunt performer. And I guess because somebody dropped out or something, they asked him to play a part, they asked him to play like an older character. So it's like, it, 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 he was kind of stepping in to kind of help make the movie. And it's it, it's quite low budget. He told stories about how they, you know, they did some of the fight choreography, you know, in the, in the accommodation that they were staying in together. Um, very low budget all you know all done you know really very much very independent spirit you know even more kind of low budget than something like scrapper um i've got to say i enjoyed this i think you have to accept it for what it is which is it's a violent exploitation film with a bit of a horror theme not all the acting is is brilliant i think jamie's fine but some of the other actors are a bit like "Eh." not all the fighters are as good in a fight scene as, as jamie is but it's it's fine i thought it was well paced it had some funny lines i think you're you're meant to find it a bit cheesy um i thought it was an enjoyable movie basically this woman is is meeting her boyfriend's parents for the first time she's got some sort of dark violent past due to some trauma but when she gets to this country house um where her rich parents live there's something genuinely very weird going on and it turns out that they are harvesting people for their blood and and she's the next victim what they don't realize is that she is uh an absolute kind of uh Uh, ticking time bomb herself and she fights back and you get this really down and dirty let's fuck people up in the woods kind of movie which don't expect shakespeare crack open a beer put your feet up stick it on late night and you will get an enjoyable knockabout movie with at the end a couple of proper good fights right um and some you know some you know decent bits interspersed Uh, i think jamie's a lot of fun the main sort of the the villain guy who definitely has watched a lot of Bennett and Commando is a lot of fun. Um, I I approached this for what it was. I wasn't. I, I didn't. I wasn't expecting it to be brilliant. I didn't take it too seriously, and definitely enjoyed the movie for what it was, which is a bit of good old fashioned trashy entertainment. So um, for what it is, I think it's a, a, a good little movie, and and I I got value for money renting that. So I, I would recommend it. But only if you appreciate a bit of tongue in cheek, you know, exploitation action, that's what I would call it. Um, And thank you to Jamie for drawing our attention to it. And the last thing I want to see, this is entirely hot off the presses, uh, the creator uh which is the new film directed by Gareth uh Edwards who did uh a, 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 the first Godzilla film and Star Wars Rogue One this is his next big sci-fi movie since then um are you w- where are you on Gareth Edwards mate you a fan um not really i didn't like
1: um i didn't like Godzilla at all yes um
0: I think he's grossly overrated. and I always confuse him with the guy from the raid, who I actually really like. Well, that's the thing. When I heard, oh, they're doing it, they're doing a Star Wars Rogue One, which is like set between the first three Star, you know, episodes one, two, and you know, episode three and episode four. Uh, it's you know, it follows the mission to the to Death Star. And I went, ah, okay, i we we know what happened in that mission to the Death Star, how they're gonna make that good. And so it's been directed by a guy called Gareth Edwards. And I went, Oh, Gareth Evans from the Raid. No, Gareth Edwards. And Donnie Yens in it. And yeah. he went, Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. But in the end it was Gareth Edwards, different bloke. Apparently he did a film called Monsters, which did a lot with a little in terms of budget and and, and like was a clever like rogue movie that managed to do some interesting special effects and stuff, uh, and was like a very highly thought of indie film. Where are you on Rogue One? Do you like Rogue One? It's okay, but you can just
1: tell that they realised the film was shit, so they went into post-production, got someone to play Darth Vader, so he could be in the film a little bit for a kind of fan service, because see if Darth Vader's not in that film, it is very bland. And yeah, you can, it's I've quite got people like saying,
0: like, oh, this is one of the best Star Wars films. I really did not get that vibe I thought it was no. okay. I thought it was okay. I like some of the people in it, like Felicity Jones and uh, what's the name of the guy... The, he's he's from somewhere in... La- I think he's like Mexican and he was in Narcos, Mexico as well. What's his name? He plays Cassian Andor. That's yeah. uh, Diego Luna. I like Diego Luna. I, I, I like some of the people in it. Um, You know, uh, but uh, this didn't really kind of... Uh, that didn't vibe for me. And, and like you, I understood that the film only got to the point where it was releasable with someone else coming in. Tony Gilroy came in and doing reshoots. So I didn't think and i didn't like godzilla either so i didn't i was very on the fence about whether to watch this because i don't think gareth edwards is all that good and i thought i'll watch i'll listen for the reviews and the the reviews didn't solve it for me either because what they're going was oh well you know it's uh visually it's great it's kind of maybe the ideas aren't you know are a bit lightweight but it's visually really good to watch it's an enjoyable film and some people thought it was great and i just thought okay so what we're saying is this is going to be visually impressive maybe um and but the story maybe won't you know it's won't perhaps delve in as deep as it could have done maybe that's worth a watch it's about ai it, it offers an alternative view on ai at an interesting time because you know look i think i think ai is a complex issue and i'm probably on the the, the black mirror like writer strike side of things to say that it's not ai necessarily that's the problem it's what unscrupulous human beings will do with ai it's the problem but I'm willing to see someone tell any kind of different story about it. I thought the use of AI in the new Mission Impossible film was quite fun. Don't take it seriously. You've got to have a villain in a Mission Impossible film. But if someone wants to do a film that's saying, well, maybe AI isn't isn't a problem. Maybe there's an alternative view on AI. I thought, well, I'll watch I'll watch that story if it's well told. Um, so in the end, I just thought, like, I'll bite the bullet and watch it, you know, because it's the, you know, there's not, frankly, not a lot else on. So I went to see it. Uh, the premise is that John David Washington, is, as our main character, has been caught up in a, a, a gl- essentially a global war over AI. AI in 2060 or, or 20, yeah, something like that. And in you know 40 years in the future, has developed to the point where you've got AI in control of things, and uh, you know AI, you know robots, you know doing jobs, controlling computer systems. All of this stuff. Something goes wrong, and AI drops a bomb on Los Angeles. Uh, The Western world immediately outlaws AI and says, we've got to destroy AI because otherwise they're going to drop nuclear bombs on us all over, which is shades of the Terminator, right? Um, John David Washington is a special forces soldier who has been sent undercover to Asia, where AI is much more embraced. And there, you know, the... uh, there is someone out there who's creating newer and newer versions of ai which they see as the biggest threat they want to find and kill that person known as the creator the type of the film the while he's he's been un, undercover for a very long time he's met and fallen in love with this woman who she believe who he believes is maybe the daughter of the creator she's actually pregnant with his child he's still working for his kind of you know military paymasters but now he's in love with this woman and he thinks that what he can do is if they find and kill the creator he can keep his wife safe and safe and and, and and it'll be okay. What happens is this brand new weapon called Nomad, which is like a giant eye in the sky, which can kind of, you know, fly around the world, light up an area with lasers and then just, you know, destroy it with missiles, comes online and they say, oh, well, we're attacking now. His wife is, as far as he can see, killed. He's, you know, knocked out and taken back. Some, what, maybe years later they're still trying to see if he can remember what happened uh to see because they haven't found the creator yet but he's given up he's working a job clearing the radiation from los angeles and they say we want you back they show him footage that his wife is still alive um the creator's still out there um we're going to airstrike the area if you want to save your wife you've got one last chance find the weapon that they're making um and uh you know, you can come home with your wife, basically. And he's like, oh, well, okay, maybe I can save my wife. Turns out the weapon is a small child or an AI child that that is like the next evolution in AI. He therefore has mixed feelings about killing it because it might be a robot. It looks like a kid as far as he's concerned. Uh, the child is very special. He's got, you know, seems to have additional kind of powers and capabilities. He still hasn't found his wife, though. So he goes on the run with the kid trying to find her. The military are in hot pursuit and battle ensues. Um all of this has been done in other films, whether it's the *Terminator*, *Blade Runner*, AI, um, *Apocalypse Now* because it's set over in East Asia. There wasn't a single thing that I hadn't seen in another film. That in itself isn't a problem if the story itself is interesting. Unfortunately, it isn't. I honestly, I've seen people give this like six out of ten, so disappointed. I thought this was fucking dog shit. <laughs> I was, I was looking at my watch after an hour.
1: That seems like quite a lengthy amount of time because it sounds like i would have been looking at my watch after the
0: fucking it's fucking dreadful it's pretty tenuous as to why john david washington would be sent undercover in east asia in the first place and that people would be convinced by that the ais in this film are actually quite stupid because john david washington is an ex-special forces soldier but he's out now and now he's living near to living with the daughter of the creator of ai it's like, oh yeah, he's definitely not an undercover soldier come to get you. You can definitely trust him. Do you know what I mean? The AIs in this film are actually pretty fucking stupid. They don't do anything, right? the the The, the main idea of the film is to say, well, maybe there's an alternative of UI, maybe of AI, maybe it's not all bad. And then the film does absolutely nothing to discuss that idea, right? No, they have this very brief conversation. that says that the um, the the dropping the bomb on. Uh, La was a programming error. The human, like hu- human being, wrote the code wrong, and there was an error, and that's why the bomb got dropped. But AI's taken the blame. But there's still a discussion to be had about well, humans have still got to write the code for AI. Doesn't that? Isn't there? Isn't there still a problem with giving AI too much control? No, nope, not discussed. Right. Huh. The, the whole of Asia has, has has looked past the nuclear thing and is really like on board with AI. We don't find out why. It's not even fucking discussed. The story in this situation should play out. That conflict of ideas. The uh, the West wants to get rid of all the AI. The East doesn't want to um, get rid of all AI. The way the story plays out should um, should like litigate that that difference of opinion. It's like oh, this thing that's just happened, in the story shows one side of the argument. But the next thing that happens, no, just doesn't even fucking discuss it. It's just a series of fucking scene to scene. You don't you go all the way over to East Asia and you see some of the cities they live in and you see some of the eyes. You don't find anything out about how they live. You don't find anything out really about the role that AI plays in people's lives. He's decided that it would just be interesting that you would have AI fucking rice farmers and they've built AIs to look like it looks like a farmer and then he turns his head and he's got the little kind of spindle that shows he's a robot. So what what are they using AI for? I don't know. They appear to have designed AI. That this that the East East Asia, right? A country which is a very technological place, right? Or has some very big technological hubs anyway has fully embraced ai and what they've built out with that ai is infantry and rice farmers right and buddhist monks right they don't have any ai doing anything else as far as we can see we don't find out they don't have any cyber capability 40 years in the future they've built this massive fucking nomad thing that's going to blow them up they're all into ai they don't have the ability to launch a cyber attack or a hack well, they haven't designed any AI that can fucking get in a computer system. They don't have any military response. It's just fucking, why am I watching? And the reason I'm asking all these questions is I'm so bored by the story that they are showing me. John David Washington is completely wasted. I like him, but his character is just there to take the kid to the next fucking scene. The kid is fine, but basically they've nicked from all the AI films and The Golden Child. The kid is the fucking Golden Child from that old Eddie Murphy movie. She actually puts her fucking... She closes her eyes and puts her hands together like the kid in The Golden Child and then you uses her AI powers I'm watching the fucking golden child which isn't a very good movie but it's better than this shit I I fucking hell and the thing is right I watched Godzilla and didn't like it right and that didn't bother me because it's like oh, look if it's good it's good if it's not I'm not gonna watch another Godzilla film this one really got under my skin partly because I went to the cinema and watched it and it really is fucking it's missed the mark in every possible way a film can miss the fucking mark and that just annoyed me but also, it's it's a sci-fi film that's had eighty million dollars spent on it. I'm a sci-fi fan, so I want to see them be good, and it's and it's not. It's also AI is a big fucking discussion point right now. You've stepped out and said I've got some points to make about AI. There was an opportunity to make a genuinely interesting film from this point of view. He's completely fucking missed it. It really really frustrated me. And the other thing that's really annoying is that blockbuster cinema is going through a real fucking problem. Like the listener message said, that if 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 people you know if if original or different or non-franchise big sci-fi films are not going to be successful, what next? Well, I'll tell you what next. Do one that isn't shit, right? From a director that isn't fucking stealing a living. Okay, there's there's how you take this forward. uh, What's pissing me off is that someone in the fucking Hollywood studios, because they always learn the wrong lesson, is going to look at this and go, right, no more new sci-fi stories. Let's just do franchises. Because Gareth Edwards has fucking fumbled this so badly. So I'm really fucking fucked off by this film. Because not only was it shit, it was embarrassingly shit. I thought I was the only person in, in the cinema. Um, and uh, at one point, I did sort of say quite audibly, fuck's sake, at how like, dim everything was. Because the, the AI group, the AI guerrillas, just wander around and go, oh, look, Nomad's found us again. Of course Nomad's found you again, because you fucking, you just wander around. You're not fucking hiding, you're idiots. And the plot was so dumb that I just you know swore out loud and then when I got up to go for a piss in the middle way through the film, I didn't even think about, oh, I hope I don't miss anything. Like, fuck it, I'm going for a piss. I don't care if I miss anything. I noticed there were two other people in the cinema, so they must have heard me getting frustrated and like leaning back in my seat and thinking, what the fuck am I, what the fuck am I watching? Um, and I did actually genuinely think, when I went for a piss about an hour and ten minutes in, I did think quite seriously about not coming back to watch the rest of the film. Um, that's how much I fucking thought this film was a piece of shit. Um, when we do the um, uh, the the double Real awards for the year 2023. I don't think this is worse than Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, but it's going to be a contender for worst film of the year. It's definitely a contender for the biggest disappointment. Not because I expected more from Gareth Edwards, just I'm so disappointed that the Hollywood studio system has taken $80 million and completely fucking squandered it and squandered what could have been an interesting idea in the hands of someone who knows how to fucking make a movie. And one final thing, right? While I'm fucking on my rant. Okay. Um, the, the, the justification for this was, oh, maybe the ideas in this film aren't very well developed, but Gareth Edwards is a really visually impressive director. He's not that fucking visually impressive. There are some good things in here that look visually good, sure. It's not it's not brilliantly made. And a visually impressive film usually needs to be like pulled together, like a design that links to the story. And it's not like we're short of people who've made films look good and have a good story in the sci-fi genre. You know, like James Cameron, Christopher Nolan, Steven Spielberg, Stanley Kubrick, fucking, you know name them Ridley Scott it's like are we short of people who are good visually that we are prepared to put up with fucking boneheaded storytelling like this this is fucking I I don't understand why at no point nobody in the process of this film went you know at least for Rogue One they went actually Gareth has fucked this up we need to get someone in to actually like to to sort this film out on you go you carry on making one of the stupidest films of all time It's fucking pissed me right off so I feel, better. I feel better now, but I don't, That's you good. know, I don't feel better about what it means for the, the future of cinema, but God, what a, what a stupid fucking film. Okay. So anyway, while that happened, did that kind of give you a chance to, uh, to see if you, you'd, uh, you know, see, uh, any more films to add to our list of films watched this month? It gave me plenty of time
1: and I haven't. So okay. Um, I'm, I'm glad you feel better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. So, having discussed the new films uh, that we watched uh, this uh, this month, good and bad, as you heard, uh, the the final part of Double Rear Monthly is for us to talk about our resolutions. Now, what we do at the start of each year is we make resolutions to say, well, "What are we going to do this year?" And it's not losing weight or you know uh, reading more books. It's you know film related New Year's resolutions. Uh, I tend to turn it into a project where I make a resolution to watch uh, a film a month. Connected in some way, or by the same director, stuff like that. I've done John Carpenter, Stanley Kubrick. Uh, this uh, this year, I'm doing David Cronenberg. My project is called the Cronenberg Institute, in which uh, a curated list of films uh, of of David Cronenberg. I watch one a month. Uh, we're now in the kind of the final stretch, where I'm watching some of the old classics, having watched all the kind of big ones of his that I haven't seen before. Uh, James, your resolution, which was picked for you by uh, in a in a very enjoyable process by the listeners is called Legal Cage of Consent. Now tell us, tell, tell the lovely audience uh, what the what the idea and format of Legal Cage of Consent is.
1: It was to just kind of give me a kind of thing of a similar ilk that you do with David Kornenberg just to kind of talk about every month. So I thought, oh, why don't we pick one of Hollywood's more entertaining characters and just watch some Nick Cage films? And then we spent about three or four months trying to come up with a title um, settled on legal cage of consent and then once a month i go to a, a nick cage film generator and it
0: just randomly picks a film for me very good and the, the fun bit about that is that because you don't know what you're going to get it can be pretty much anything and it, you sort of have to kind of uh it's like, it for me, it's like the cinematic equivalent of those um, YouTube videos you see where the dogs learn to put the, the tennis ball in the machine and it flings it out and they have to run after it. And every every month I find out what you've had flung at you and, and, and how you responded to it. So what did you get this month? I got Con Air. Okay. Um, presumably you've seen Conair Air before. Yeah, I've I'd see, I'd seen it probably about 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, and this is the film that kind of coined the idea that you get two kinds of Nick Cage, Stoic hero Nick Cage and Batshit Crazy Nick Cage. And this is this is where he kind of really got the, the stoic hero bit down. Um what's your history with with Conair? Did you did you like it when you first saw it? Was this part yeah, of yours? It was it was alright. It was
1: it was a, it was a fun film. I think the aspect of it being in a plane um is what makes the story interesting, a plane full of, you know, evil prisoners. But other than that, I, didn't, I wasn't really taken aback by uh, Nick Cage's performance. I didn't remember it for Nick Cage. The only thing I remember is him going, Put the bunny back in the box. It <laughs> was a bit <laughs> Forrest Gumpy. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't like a wow, I'm going to watch Con Air again because I love Nick Cage. I was to watch Con Air again because I, I like those kind of films. I liked um, Flight Plan uh, mm-hmm. with Jodie Foster. And, you know, I think films that involve, like, the confined environment of a plane are always going to be interesting to watch. They're not always good, but. Yeah, I'd give it a 6 out of 10. It's uh, got a good performance from John Malkovich, mm-hmm. who's always a, a reliable
0: baddie. They've, um, they've done well with the supporting cast they assembled, haven't they?
1: But other than that, I don't think... It, it, it's not going to blow anyone away. I think it's just,
0: oh, Connie, I might just watch that for a bit, kind of kind of film, that you, kind of vibe. You said you weren't taken aback by his performance in this film. Were you taken aback by his hair? Oh, yeah, of course. His His hair is probably the maddest thing in this film. That could have been nominated for an Oscar. That's yeah. That would be. It's it's it's. I, I, is it a mullet? I don't know what it is. I don't know what you call it, but it's very. I mean, for, for those who haven't seen Conair, surely everyone's seen Conair. It's got this kind of quite manipulative setup, hasn't it? Where he's he's a special forces soldier who's back from serving, and obviously in America that that they're pretty unequivocal about that. Thank you for your service they're the best of us and all that sort of thing that there's no question about that and but in this area he's treated very badly and disrespectfully and his pregnant wife is is being kind of bullied and he fights these guys and because there's two of them and he fights them and he kind of uses some of his unarmed combat skills and I think he either either maims one of the guys or maybe one of the guys dies because he kind of does that kind of bridge of the nose through the brain thing but he he gets five years which I have to say seems like an incredibly harsh sentence for like you know, I don't know how he couldn't find a lawyer who would kind of make a decent self-defence case for the fact that his pregnant wife was in trouble or anything like that, but off to prison he went for like five years. I, I felt like they were really trying to whip the audience up, going, oh, the system, it's not fair. Look at this this guy, so that you're like... He, he's the most kind of... He's the most unjustly imprisoned person in the history of film, isn't he? Uh,
1: he's got to be. He's, like, he's up, it's like the Sean Bean equivalent of being in jail. If Sean Bean's going to die in a film, then, yeah, he's going to be... Uh... Just imprisoned in a film.
0: Yeah, and then and then they go, I know what we'll do. We'll take this incredible bunch of uh, uh, dangerous criminals and fly them on this kind of slightly shonky plane and give them ample opportunity to hijack it <laughs> and cause problems. And he's got to fly on the plane with them. He can't get the fucking train or something. He can't, you know, this... So the guy who's been... Everyone else on the plane is like an com- incredibly dangerous prisoner who's been transferred to a new unit. He's being sent home but they've put him on the on. you know he's about to be released but they've put him on the, the it's like I feel like they've worked very hard to contrive this whole setting <laughs> but yeah it's the one thing that kind of I found a little bit off about this film otherwise it's just good fun action it's 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 a very classic kind of 90s thing this film called Broken Arrow which follows a very very similar kind of format like you know crazy charismatic bad guy sort of a, a dogged hero has got to stop him um you know, it's kind of that 90s kind of full on action, and a kind of um, John Cusack plays a similar part that uh, to the there was a character in Breaking and the same thing the, the, the guy from who normally drives a desk who's the person who's going to fix things here. So it's very much to a formula. The thing that I found really weird was Steve Buscemi's character having the tea party with that little girl. That just kind of felt like not necessary. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because that whole thing, I'm sitting there going, really? Okay, well, it why, are a we, why odd, have we got this it? kind of sticks out? Um, the rest of it is just the normal kind of. They find some fun locations, like the you know the the bit in the desert for the plane to land. You've got a dickhead character whose car gets kind of thrown into the air and smashed. It all, it really, it, it, it's it's a very much all the elements are put together for like the kind of film you want, and then there's this really weird kind of oddly tonally strange bit with the. Um, the little girl is like, oh, fuck, what's this? Yeah. Um, it it feels like it was directed by Michael Bay, only it wasn't, right? Yeah, it didn't have... I feel like it wasn't...
1: It didn't have all the kind of annoying quips that a Michael Bay film would have. Though. Mm. Yeah. Like but just to- the, the unnecessary dialogue about robots having massive testicles. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, and all of that, yeah. Um, the... Yeah, but I mean, obviously, this is Michael Bay in the '90s is doing things like The Rock, and uh, you've got you know John Woo did Broken Arrow, and then this came out, so it's very much part of that era of quite fun action films, which I think are all a little bit dated now, but quite fun. And then there's the at the end they really crank it up with the kind of love ballad playing over him meeting his daughter for the first time and all that stuff, and you think, oh man, they are really. Someone has really like worked out how to manipulate the emotions of an audience in this movie. Um, I still don't know how seriously they were taking it, but I, yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. It's kind of a it's a six out of ten film, which I'll probably watch. What one of the next five times it's on the, on the TV, I will probably watch it. It's one of those films. Just yeah. it, it's there, yeah. and I'll watch it. Yeah. Any other thoughts about Connor? Where do, where does it fit in the Nick Cage canon for you?
1: Um, it's not
0: it's not that memorable for
1: me. I know people that like it, but it's not kinda of, it doesn't highlight his acting chops up like the way Leaving Las Vegas did, and it's not as it's not a shit film which can stick out for Nick Cage, so it's sort of yeah. like a kind of middle of the road, he's not being daft, it's not unbearable to watch. Um but it's by no means like
0: his best performance. Yeah. You've got, how many more have you got now? This is October, so you've only got November and December. What what are you Uh hoping for on your last two installments of of your legal cage of consent project? I don't
1: even know the name of the film, but I do enjoy the one where it looks like he potentially is kidding on he's Hispanic and just starts kicking about a hotel room going, Vee, love fucking France, man. Yeah, I know the one you mean. I don't know. I'll have to find the title of that, but it's up to the generator. The generator gives me it. Yeah, yeah. All hail the mighty generator. Please don't curse me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, look, thank you very much for that, mate. That's the latest in legal codes of consent, uh, which leaves my resolution, which, as I uh, mentioned at the beginning of this uh, segment, is... Uh, The Cronenberg Institute, Um, I called it that because a lot of Cronenberg, especially the classic Cronenberg films, frequently have some sort of shadowy institute or organization where weird crazy shit happens. Uh, And the particular, the Cronenberg Institute where crazy shit happens is basically the inside of that guy's head. He always imagines some stuff which really blows your mind. Um, I've been watching various of his films all the ones that I haven't seen from his kind of early kind of you know nasty more independent films through to his classic 80s body horror era which I kind of seen most of Uh, and then I picked off all the other ones that he did which got quite varied actually like gangster movies like Eastern Promises and uh, you know dramas like Maps to the Stars and stuff like that and I'm now I just for the end of it I've picked three of my favorite Cronenberg films I wavered over this. I was gonna include Naked Lunch, but I didn't. I love Naked Lunch. It is a masterpiece. I just thought I would put in three films which I think are like, you know, you know, considered his absolute classic era. Um, and the latest one is The Fly. Have you seen The Fly, mate? I
1: think I was quite young when it was on, it kinda of scared me, so I put it off. Yeah.
0: It's a very creepy film. Yeah, so this is the first David Cronenberg film that I ever saw. I didn't know who he was, I hadn't heard of him. This is one of these films. It was made in 1986. I think it didn't actually get shown in the UK until 1987 and then came out in video sometime after that. So I'm in my teens when... This is the era where VHS copies or or maybe recorded off the telly sometimes... Of like certain films were circulated all the time. Oh, this has got the bit where the guy gets shot in the head, or this is the bit where she gets a tits out, and then Jason kind of goes and stabs everybody in a Friday the Thirteenth film. It's one of those films where people would go, "Oh, look at this bit! Look at this bit!" But unlike a lot of those "look at this bit" kind of films that used to get circulated back then, this is a really fucking classy film. This is a really fucking well made film. And the background to this is that David Cronenberg had done his his early kind of disreputable stuff. I think I mentioned the early episode that he did. It was either Rabid or uh, or Shivers where uh, he, he, he caused such a scandal that he was evicted from his flat because his, his rental lease had a morals clause. And they saw this film and said, you violated our morals clause and kicked him out of his flat. That sort of scandal he used to cause. He did the film Scanners where someone's head explodes. And that was what he was kind of known for, this kind of body horror, this kind of alternative stuff. And he got the attention of Hollywood and was hired to direct a Stephen King adaptation called The Dead Zone, which is really good, by the way. But it's not really a very David cronenberg film. David Cronenberg comes in and says, look, I'll show you that I am a good film director. I have technique. I can get the actors to do what they need to do. I will pace, edit, direct, and deliver you a really good Stephen King adaptation of, of his novel The Dead Zone. And it's really decent. It's got Christopher Walken, uh, Martin Sheen, um... And everyone went, oh, nice job, David Cronenberg. You, uh, you know, we, we like your, I like the cut of your gym. What, what would you like to do? And he was working, I think, because we did this on the one that got away, at roundabout this time on a version of Total Recall. And for the reasons that get uh, described in the the uh, the episode that we did of that, that fell through. Um, he uh, he said, okay, well, what, what shall I do? And this version of The Fly was knocking around. And The Fly had originally been a film made in 1958 based on a short story, a horror short story, about a scientist who was trying to create teleportation. And he experiments on himself. He teleports himself from one machine in his kind of lab to the, the other machine on the other side of the lab. And it all seems successful, except a fly was in, the, um, was in the teleport pod with him and he's fused with the fly and starts to turn into one. They did it in 1958 with zero special effects and not very good people making it. And the film's actually quite crap. It's absolutely ripe for a remake. It's a perfect example of a movie that needs a remake because it's a really good idea that needs to be told by someone who's really good at it. Now, Mel Brooks of, you know, uh, Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles fame has at this time decided that he wants to make films other than kind of his Mel Brooksy comedies. But he's been advised, I think rightly, that people won't let him direct films like that because of his reputation. So he's producing these films for other people. He produced The Elephant Man. He produced this range of really interesting films. He's producing The Fly. This other film director, whose name escapes me and I've not even heard of outside of this, was all set to make the film. And he suffered a family bereavement. And Melbrook says, take some time off and we'll see. It gives about three months to kind of do it. And then Melbrook says, look, I really would like to hold the film open for you, but if we are going to kind of keep everybody together and, and the whole thing us, we've got to direct it now. If you are up for it, I'll support you directing this film. If not, I'll let you out of your contract if you don't feel ready to do it. And the guy says, no, I'm still not ready. I've got to look after my family. So that guy drops out. David Cronenberg only gets to direct this film because his total recall version didn't happen and because another guy dropped out of this film, which is so weird because he is the perfect director for this film. Because this is a film where, well, they want to make a... It's a reasonably big budget. It's certainly aimed at the mainstream. They want to make a mainstream horror movie that is going to hit audiences and is going to get young, sort of disreputable little buggers like me going, oh, yeah, watch this movie and share it with my friends. And it delivers exactly that. It delivers exactly that movie, which delivers all the horror beats that you absolutely need. And yet it's completely a David Cronenberg film because he just uses it as an excuse to do a body horror transformation film but a really, really good one because you follow the the main character, the professor played by Jeff Goldblum, trying to do this, the scientist trying to do it, why he decides it's time to experiment on himself, one small error, and then it, and it beautifully shed, you know, says, in, in the original film, right, he comes out of the teleportation pod with a fly's head, right? That's how they do it in the first one. It's fucking terrible. In this, he doesn't even notice that the fly was in the pod to begin with. But then he notices his body changing. He goes, oh, suddenly he can kind of jump faster and doesn't need as much sleep as he used to. But then he finds strange hairs on his... uh, And then it gets worse and worse and worse until he is actually transforming into a fly. And you follow the story and it's so well done and it's so well paced that you're horrified by it. And it's got proper scary moments. He smashes through a window and grabs people and stuff like that. And yet you feel really sorry for him because it's just a fucking mistake. You like this guy at the start of the movie and you can see him fucking turning into and deteriorating into this into this creature. You feel really fucking bad for him. He's in love with the Gina Davis character and she feels really bad for him as well. So you feel really sorry for this guy while being horrified by him. And because it's David Crowe, he pulls no fucking punches about how horrible it all is. There's the famous scene where you work out that the fly now can only eat, the fly man can only eat by vomiting his this acidic kind of stomach acid onto his food. And then when it... Um, dissolves he sucks it up so when there's a conflict between him and another human character you can guess what he does to attack that person so lots of proper like horror moments but a really well done really well made film where you genuinely care for and relate to the characters that it's happening to it's a fucking top notch film it's really really good I don't think it's for the squeamish because it's pretty sort of grim about the transformation into a fly and what happens um, but it's really really well made Um, what's interesting is that um, it's a good example of David Cronenberg just knowing exactly when his film should start and when it should finish and just giving you what you need in the story. Because the the start of the film is Gina Davis's science journalist going to a a kind of a a dinner party type event where lots of scientists are talking about their new inventions. She meets Jeff Goldblum and he tells her about his invention. You get no exposition. You don't see her at her um, office going, yes, go to the event, find someone who's got a good invention. No, you just, the first scene, he's chatting with uh, Jeff Goldblum. They obviously like each other and he gives a few hints about his um, about his experiment and then the story goes on. It's like, wow, you've not, you, nothing extraneous, right? Only what you need for the story. And then the end, the story resolves itself and you don't get the end scene where they're sitting afterwards talking about what's happened or any of that, no, nope, story's finished. And it's just like, wow, this is like not one minute is wasted. Well done characters, well made film. Made in 1986, the special effects still hold up really well. Look, some of it's obviously puppet work, but it really holds up well in every single respect and just shows exactly how good David Cronenberg is. And there are going to be David Cronenberg films on this list and they're going to be great David Cronenberg films that I think if you watch The Naked Lunch, that's not for everyone. Okay, You watch his body horror, that's not for everyone. If you like good... Gory, scary horror films. This is the perfect David Cronenberg film for you to watch because it's absolutely, absolutely um, just everything it needs to be. It's probably his most accessible kind of horrory body horror film from his eighties era. I can't say enough about this film. This film is great. Um, it's you know no no accident that I was I was always going to include this in my list of twelve. So that's the fly for me. It's probably not your kind of movie, mate, but it's genuinely well made, well done film. It's you know not. For something as gory and kind of, you know, with as, as much kind of messy detail as it is, not trashy at all. It's just a really fucking well-made, top-notch horror movie.
1: So yeah, that's what I think I, about that. Yeah, I know it's, uh, it's quite a celebrated kind of cult classic kind mm-hmm. of film, but it's definitely not
0: my kind of thing. No, definitely not your kind of thing. Now... As I always do in these uh, in these cases is I always use the uh, the Cronenberg film or the John Carpenter or whatever film I'm doing in a given year as an excuse to do an impromptu top ten of like ten other films that I thought of when I was watching this more or that I'll you know, have something in common with this movie. And this is a pretty simple one. This is an impromptu top ten of remakes that are better than the original. Uh, so in no particular order, ten remakes like The Fly, which are better than the original. Maybe some of these are more arguable than others. Uh, The Thing, uh, The Maltese Falcon, the Humphrey Bogart one happens to have been a remake, uh, The Wizard of Oz, which people don't realise was a remake, Ocean's Eleven, Heat, Little Shop of Horrors, Last of the Mohicans, the 2018 version of A Star is Born, Man on Fire, and Some Like It Hot. Uh, there's a couple I haven't included from this because not everyone agrees that they're better than the original, like The uh, Sorcerer, Scarface, Nosferatu, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Uh, some people think The Departed is, is is better than the original, but I don't. Uh, and I haven't included Casino Royale because it's not really a remake. The first film called Casino Royale is just an absolute travesty and that doesn't count. But that's ten. that's 10 remakes I would recommend you watch because they are considerably better than the original. Uh, and that's that's what I had to say about David Cronenberg this month. Um, anything else to add, mate? Uh, either to this David Cronenberg project or to or to Double Real Monthly as a whole. No, I think that is us, my man. Thank you very much, mate. That's all for the latest edition of Double Real Monthly. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. The latest Penalty Shootout film quiz will be released shortly. Next week, we'll be back with our regular features. First up will be our Classics and Recommended feature, where we finally get round to watching John Michael McDonough's The Guard, then our hidden gem where we tell you why you should get round to watching Down and Out in Beverly Hills.
1: In The One That Got Away, we'll tell you about the disastrous Bruce Willis vehicle Broadway Brawler, and in the remake Hate Watch, we look at how
0: Robert Downey Jr. baffled us all in Doolittle. We look forward to you joining us then. Look after yourselves in the meantime. See you on the other side. Anything to say about that, Mac?
1: Got anything to say about that? His microphone sounds quite nice.